Morse here from Left Right Radio. What is the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution? Uh, obviously, a lot has been said about it since the Parkland school shooting. Today, you have former uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, John Paul Stevens uh, writing a column, uh, an editorial in the New York Times, where he's called for uh, rescinding the Second Amendment. He's suggesting that the young people protesting um, in the aftermath of this Parkland shooting focus on uh, lobbying their legislators to actually rescind the Second Amendment. So let's just take a brief look at what is the Second Amendment and why is it important? Because there's a lot of misinformation out there today, uh, particularly from liberal uh, talk show hosts, etc. The Second Amendment to the Constitution reads as follows. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, I've heard a, a left-wing radio host this morning say that um, conservatives don't like to talk about the part of the Second Amendment that says a well-regulated militia. And um, there's been a claim made by Justice John Paul Stevens, one rejected by the majority in the Supreme Court, that this was a reference to concern on the part of the states at the time of the establishment of the American Republic that a standing army might threaten the uh, to occupy the states. So they put that in. And that's, a, that's his interpretation. That's been widely disputed, widely debated. What my understanding is, and by the way, I don't think conservatives are trying to avoid this part of the amendment at all. What a well-regulated militia meant to the founding fathers, and what it still means, is that all males 18 and up, I think it might have even been 16 and up, I'm not sure the age, who are citizens and who frankly are white, are, have a right to keep and bear arms, that they are the militia. There were no militias in the formal sense. Um, you know, the, I've heard people say, well, what about the National Guard? The National Guard system wasn't established until the 1890s. So that's 100 years later. The founding generation considered well-regulated militia to be law-abiding white American males, age 18 and up. That was the well-regulated militia. They would have a right to keep and bear arms because they were law-abiding. They were regulated as such. Um, that didn't mean that they had a right to own weapons like cannon. You know, the argument has been made even by some people on the right, but certainly by left-wingers, that, uh, you know, you, that doesn't mean you can own like a nuclear device. And that's true. Military weaponry like cannon were not available to the average citizens. Arms were basically small arms that one could carry on, carry on their shoulder or carry in public or however. Um, and it was not uh, military gear, you, can, you know, which means to what that would translate today is that, uh, you know, that doesn't mean you can own a, a, a Sherman tank, you know, or a, um, you know, a, you know, various military grade weapons. And that does bring in question the business of whether or not the, um, you know, the AR-15 or, or other semi-automatic weapons ought to be regulated. That's a legitimate conversation to have, in my opinion. 
Um, but the fact is that a well-regulated militia simply means law-abiding adults. And of course, the franchise was expanded over time to include African-Americans and women, you know, as we became more enfranchised as a nation, as our citizenship expanded to include more people, which is a natural progression in a free country. And so today, a well-regulated militia is any American citizen over the age of 18 who is law-abiding. In other words, it doesn't have a criminal record, doesn't have a, uh, isn't a former convict. And that's the essence of it. That's what a well-regulated militia is. Then they have a right to keep and bear arms. And by the way, the shooter in Parkland High School um, he apparently benefited from a program that was created by Obama and former uh, Attorney General Eric Holder um, called Operation Promise, I guess, that essentially expunged the criminal records of students uh, because it was the idea particularly to help minorities graduate from high school without a record so they wouldn't have a criminal record to um, to saddle their futures. All right, so the fact is that because of this crazy law, um, which really doesn't help anybody, you know, it's the fact is that because of that, this guy Cruz was able to uh, have have no record, so he could purchase a weapon. If he had had a record, and if there were proper background checks in place, which is something that I think everyone supports, he wouldn't have been able to have gotten the weapons, or at least it would have been more difficult. And um, but and he was apprehended several times by police because he was assaulting his mother. Apparently, I mean, the guy. Everyone knew the guy was a bad apple. I mean, he was a criminal, but his record was expunged because of this, you know, utopian Obama idea. Getting back to the Second Amendment, I heard it. I heard criticism this morning from. Um, former Boston Globe writer, Charlie Pierce, left-wing guy, way out there. He was on with Stephanie Miller, one of the most insulting programs I've ever heard on progressive radio. And he was saying that uh, the, the conservatives have this fantasy that we have to keep and bear arms in order to avoid the, the development of a tyrannical government, something that did not exist at the time of the founding of the Republic, and that is ridiculous, he says. Well, first of all, you know, it's, uh, it's not ridiculous, whether it was the, in the, the explicit intent of the Constitution, which, by the way, does not grant rights. It only recognizes God-given rights, existing rights, or whether it was just a part of the general understanding of the country. That was the belief system at the time. Keeping and bearing arms was viewed not just as a, as a natural means of checking and balancing government power on the state or federal level, but yes, as a last resort in case a tyrannical government tried to take over the country. You know, this was part, you, you see, the American system, our constitutional system, the, the political theory behind it, the philosophy of it, is a system of checks and balances. It's a, it's a 
It's a, it's a diffusion of powers into various areas so that one power would basically check and balance the excesses of another power. And thus, the theory held that the real power would remain in its rightful place, the sovereign citizen under God, not the state. And so in the formal sense, the Constitution, the bulk of the Constitution divides the federal government into three branches, the federal, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Each of those branches has a very specific and delineated role in governing. Each of those branches has within it a means to check excesses from the other two branches. You know, there's the veto power on the part of the executive. There's the override of a veto on the part of the Congress. There's the uh, judicial power on the part of the Supreme Court to stop unconstitutional usurpations by the other two. So they keep each other in check. And thus the power is diffused. It isn't coordinated into the hands of any one group or one person. And the further check and balance was the balance between the federal government and the states. And then the states had their own system of checks and balances. You have a governor, you have a state legislature, you've got a state uh, court system. And then from there, you had the local government, the sheriffs, the heads of the counties who were considered the highest law enforcement officer in the land. They would balance state power and federal power, I suppose. And then the local communities, they would have their mayors, their local councils, their local school boards, and their local governments, all balancing each other and balancing the power of the states. So you have a system, an intricate and, and system of checks and balances that goes all the way from the federal level down to the local level. But more fundamentally, the recognition of the Second Amendment in particular, and some of the other amendments as well, is a further expansion of this balance of power because the right of the citizen to keep and bear arms balances federal and state power. It's just part of the system. If the federal and state governments know that the citizen is armed or may be armed, they are not going to be as likely to exercise police power because they know that there's someone on the other side of the door that might have a weapon that can defend themselves and their families. And so a well, you know, a, 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 um, a citizenry that keeps and bare arms is a citizen that is balancing state and federal power. That, that's just a fact. Whether or not it's legally codified into our laws is really almost beside the point, even though it is and has been recognized by successive court decisions on the, on the federal and state level. The fact is that in the de facto sense, that is exactly what the Second Amendment does to defend themselves, not only against a personal assault and crime, but also against political assault and, uh, and tyranny. Um, the example has been raised many times that had the Jewish people in Germany had weapons, it may not have been a Holocaust. Now, I don't know if it, it would have stopped the Holocaust, but the fact of the matter is that all Germans were disarmed during the Weimar Republic period because of the 
street clashes between the two socialist thug groups, the communists and the Nazis. And so the Weimar government instituted a law ordering all people to turn in their weapons because they promised peace and safety, right? The result was that when the Nazis took over and they decided to, you know, come in and break the door down and, and, and apprehend their enemies, whether they be Jews or whether they be German dissidents or whoever they didn't, whoever they didn't like, they knew that they could do this without worrying about the possibility that on the other side of the door might be a father holding a gun that could shoot them because they didn't have guns. So they had a monopoly on guns. The government had was fully armed and they maintained this monopoly and they set up a state police entity called the Gestapo, which was modeled after the Soviet entity called the Cheka and which was an entirely socialistic development. It's another subject for another day. But the point is that had people had arms, they could have defended themselves they could have fought the Nazis. They could have gone into the woods and formed militias and fought back. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I interviewed a man who was fighting in the partisan groups in Poland during the World War II. After the war, he made uh, he emigrated to Israel. And uh, they, they did some incredible things, fighting Nazis in Poland, occupying Nazis, shooting Nazis, liberating death camps. Just an incredible story. And he said that the two things that they did not have enough of were food and guns. Had they had more access to guns, they could have launched a much stronger, much more vigorous resistance. And the Nazis would not have gotten as far as they did, I would argue. Same thing with the communists in Russia. They would never have been able to have murdered upwards of 25, 30 million people if the people had been armed. But the fact of the matter is that Arms were rare, and I think that I don't think the Tsar's government really was that much pro <laughs> pro Second Amendment. I mean, you know, allowing people to keep them 